0: And as you're turning there, I want to tell you uh, about a tale of two businesses, a tale of two businesses. One succeeds and one closes. So let me take you to the scene. You are heading west on Bagley Road in Middleburg Heights, maybe a familiar area to some of you. You drive past Angle Road and you look to your right and you see new construction. What looks like a restaurant, and you'd be right, it's gonna be Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers. I'll give you one guess what Raising Cane's main entree is. It's right, it's chicken fingers. That's the the sole main entree they have. Now one door uh, down from Raising Cane's is another restaurant, another fast food joint, called Burger King. Now you might guess what Burger King offers, mainly burgers, but they offer a lot of things too. I don't know if you remember Burger King's motto. Right? Does anybody remember Burger King's motto? Have it, your way. have it your way. Yeah, have it your way. So, Burger King appeals to their customers not really on the quality of their food, but really with the freedom of choice. Right? Unlimited selection. You guys can choose anything you want. Now, between these two restaurants, Raising Cane's and Burger King, which one do you think succeeded and which one do you think closed? Well, Cain succeeded, and Burger King closed. Now, there might be more factors than this. I'm not a business major, but I can't help but think that this is a reversal of our natural way of thinking. You and I think happiness comes with unlimited freedom and unrestrained choice. But when those things are offered to us, we actually really don't know what to choose. I mean, think about when you sit down for family movie night and you're trying to pick out a movie on Netflix and it takes you an hour to pick out the movie. The restaurant Raising Cane's thinks differently. They limit your selection, but it actually increases customer satisfaction. I never have to worry what I'm getting at Cane's. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like they tell their customers, guys, we're going to offer you just one thing, but trust us, you're going to love it. People assume that because God does not offer us unlimited, unrestrained freedom, that he must be out to kill our joy. Well, those same people have discovered that whether it's our food, our entertainment, or even our sex, unlimited and unrestrained freedom leads to frustration, not to joy. Today, we're going to talk about how to approach sex wisely. We're going to look at Proverbs 5, part of Proverbs 6, and Proverbs 7 to address this. There will be a lot of negative commands. There will be a lot of warnings. But underneath it all is God's wise and loving heart. When it comes to sex, just like the rest of our lives, true freedom and joy come within the boundaries that our good and wise God gives to us. So if we're going to sum up these chapters with a main idea or a main point, you can find this on the back of your bulletin. We could say this. God levels with us about the danger and the delights of sex. To preserve our life and to keep our joy, He calls us to trust His way, not our own. Now we won't read these chapters straight through, instead, we'll organize them into different categories, a progression of sorts. Throughout these chapters, we'll see the predicament, the prognosis, and the power. Now, before we dive in, I want to give you a couple disclaimers. Uh, Disclaimer number one. This is not an exhaustive treatment of the Bible's teaching about sexual sin or sexual purity. That might be obvious to you, but uh, this morning I'm going to try to address various questions that might come up. I'm going to try to address objections along the way. I might even try to address various scenarios that that you might think of. But I can't address every question, every objection, or every scenario. Uh, So like every sermon, it's probably worth a conversation after this one. That's disclaimer number one. Another disclaimer just before we dive in. If sexual sin and sexual purity are particularly sensitive subjects for you, please know that today is not a time for you to be berated. Our goal today is to handle these chapters with care and with humility and with respect and with grace and even with a a dose of honesty as well. We don't want to shy away from the commands given in these chapters. At at the same time, I want you to see ultimately the redeeming God who gives us instructions like these. So, those are a couple of disclaimers. Now, now let's dive in. Let's first look at the predicament. Today, we're drawing from all of chapter 5, all of uh, chapter 6, verses 20 to 35, and all of Proverbs 7. Now, at the beginning of each of those sections, King Solomon tells his son, about a predicament that he faces. So let's look at the beginning of each of those sections. Look with me first at Proverbs 5, verses 1 through 4. It says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp sharp as a two-edged sword. Look at the beginning of the next section, chapter 6, verses 20 to 24. My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching of light and the proofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue, of the adulteress. Finally take a look at the beginning of the last section, chapter seven, verses one to five. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you, keep my commandments and live, keep my teaching as the apple of your eye, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart, say to wisdom you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Now, all three sets of verses sound really similar, don't they? Solomon draws his, attention, his son's attention to a predicament. It's really a competition. A competition between two messages vying for his son's heart. One message comes from his father. The other message comes from this woman who's called the forbidden woman or the adulteress. Now, a little back background on her. We get introduced to the forbidden woman in chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. There we learn that she has forsaken her husband, and she has even forsaken her God. Other details that these chapters indicate that this is a woman who remarried, and specifically remarried a husband who is outside of God's people. This woman as a whole is a symbol for sexual immorality, sex outside of God's good boundaries. Now later, when we read chapter 9, this forbidden woman will be called woman folly. So not only is she a symbol of sexual immorality, she's also a symbol of all spiritual unfaithfulness. So if, if you know the story of King Solomon, you know how his story proved this as well. Solomon's sexual unfaithfulness led him to be unfaithful to the Lord. Solomon would have his heart turned away from the Lord to worship the gods of his many wives. Now, One pastor notes the particular danger of sexual sin. Like any sin, it distances us from God. But sexual sin also often causes us to create a God in our own making, in our own image. Sexual sin often causes us to create a God who approves of our decisions. That's why it's particularly dangerous. Now, as we look at this predicament, one question you might have at the outset is why does she have to be a woman? Is Solomon sexist? Is he saying that all women are mere objects or all women prey on innocent young men? No, he's not saying that. I don't think that would be a fair way to read it. To remind you, Solomon's writing to his son. I imagine if he wrote to his daughter, he would warn her about the forbidden men that she would have to avoid. And I would say, too, if you read the rest of Proverbs, you would see Solomon has ample categories for men who are sinful. If you read the rest of Proverbs, you would eventually get to Proverbs 31 and the virtuous woman who is valuable, not just because of her sexuality, but who is valuable because she works diligently and skillfully to help her family. So Solomon's not targeting women here. The predicament at hand is that there is a competition for his son's heart. A competition between two sets of words, the words of his dad and the words of the forbidden woman. Now, did you notice how Solomon describes the woman's words? Look at chapter 5, verse 3. He says, they drip honey. They are smoother than oil. Look at chapter 6, verse 24. The smooth tongue of the adulteress. Chapter 7, verse 5, he describes her words again as smooth. Her words go down easy. They taste good. They offer immediate, visible satisfaction. So his, the, Solomon is a dad who straight up acknowledges, Son, in the moment, her words are way more appealing than mine are. In the moment, her words are way more attractive. In the moment, her words are way more persuasive than mine We think of this competition between these two sets of words. This competition has existed ever since the beginning, ever since Eden, really. Think back to Adam and Eve. They could have listened to God's word and go his way, or they could listen to the serpent's words and go their own way. Remember how the serpents used words. He attacked and twisted God's words. That was the source of the predicaments. He made God's words way more restrictive than they actually were. He made God out to be stingy, not generous. He asked Eve, did God really say this? He attacked God's words. And remember how the serpent's words were much more immediately and visibly appealing to Eve. Genesis 3 verse 6 says that Eve saw that the tree was a delight to her eyes. This competition Over the son's heart between God's words and sin's words. That competition hasn't just existed since the beginning, it rages on still today. Sin appeals to us through its words, sexual sin in particular. Sexual sin tries to convince us using words like, Oh, you work so hard, you're under a ton of stress, you deserve a break. Doesn't try to convince you what you're about to do is right. It's just trying to convince you what you're about to do feels good. Contrary to that, God's word says that the rest you really need is not in sin, it is in Him. Sin uses words to try to convince us. It says things like, Sex is everything. This is the core of who you are. To deny it would be to deny your true self. God's word says sex isn't everything. It can't bear that weight. There's no way it could. Your worth and your meaning extend beyond your sexuality. To be your true self is actually to deny yourself and to follow Jesus. Because Jesus gives you the identity and the rootedness that you're searching for in a romantic relationship or in sexual fulfillment. Sexual sin uses words to try to convince us. Words like sex is nothing, it's just physical, it's natural. If you feel something is good, it must be good, especially if it doesn't hurt anybody. God's words say, sex isn't nothing. It has deep meaning and beauty that's ultimately meant to reflect Christ's love for the church. God's word says, just because a craving is natural doesn't mean it's good. Because our cravings are distorted, each and every one of us. God's word says, if you end up treating sex flippantly and on your own terms, you will end up hurting yourself. hurting others. This competition between God's words and sin's words, it rages on. So how do we handle it, especially when sin's words are so immediately and visibly appealing? Well, next we go to the prognosis, the prognosis for the predicament. To handle this competition between God's words and sin's words, we need to maintain three things. We need to maintain discipline, maintain distance, and maintain perspective. First step of the prognosis, maintain discipline. Look again at chapter 5, verse 1. Solomon writes, be attentive to wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Look down at chapter 5, verse 12. What will the son say after he gives in to the woman's words? He'll say, how I hated discipline. Notice that blame is laid at his feet, not the woman's. Look at chapter 6, verse 21 what the son should do with his dad's teaching. He says, bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. Look at chapter seven, verse three. It's not enough that he disciplines himself to keep listening and looking at God's word. He must internalize it so that it affects his heart. Chapter seven, verse three, bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. You see, Solomon doesn't advocate for discipline for discipline's sake. He advocates for discipline in order for his son to keep his heart for the Lord. Because our hearts are prone to wander. We need to keep them, just like we talked about last week. Because as soon as our heart goes, our eyes and our feet will soon follow. So Solomon warns of this in chapter six, verse 25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Chapter seven, verse 25. Let not your hearts turn aside to her ways. It's like he tells his son Son, you can't expect to face this competition successfully without disciplining your heart. Sin is too appealing. Sin is too powerful. Sin is too persuasive to just try to handle it by winging it. Now, I know a lot of us here, a lot of you here are runners. I know people here who've done 5Ks, 10Ks, people who've ran. Half marathons, I know one guy who did it yesterday. I know people who've run marathons, Tough mutters, there are a lot of runners here. Now ask the people who have done any kind of running competition, and they're gonna tell you that the competition really begins before the whistle blows. If you show up to the competition without having trained and disciplined yourself, you're gonna lose. Your success in the competition is largely a product of your discipline to train for the competition. So my friends, saying no to sin and yes to God, it does not begin in the moment of crisis. It begins in your daily discipline. Some of us are trying to stay faithful to God and fight off sin without discipline, and you wonder why it's hard. If you sat on your couch all the time, never exercise, and ate plenty of junk food, you wouldn't be surprised when you can't run a marathon. And when you do the spiritual equivalent, when you just sit around taking a bunch of junk and don't internalize the word, and are you gonna be surprised that fighting sin is hard? Chapter seven, Solomon paints a scene for us. It's of a young man who falls into the woman's trap. And where does his trouble begin? His trouble begins with his lack of discipline. It's his idleness. You see, if he was disciplined, he wouldn't wander aimlessly. He would be focused. If he was disciplined, he wouldn't have an empty mind. He would have a full mind. My friend, if you're going to handle the competition between God's word and sin's word, you must maintain discipline. Listen to what the Apostle Paul told Timothy. Discipline yourself for godliness. Because our hearts do not naturally love God and hate sin. They actually naturally do the opposite. And I I can't help but think of our current moment and how the stakes are even higher. Discipline is harder now. Because our endless distractions have destroyed our ability to concentrate and to focus. And I can't help but think that Satan takes advantage of this. Now, I don't want to be the guy who cries boogeyman at the side of your TV or the side of your phone. But I bet if you looked at those things less, you could concentrate more. I bet if you weren't so distracted, you could be more disciplined. And friend, I don't want to just hammer this home moralistically. I want to give you hope that you can do this. I know it's a work in progress, but Christian, I want you to remember that you have resurrection power in you. I don't want you to be defeated before you start. There is hope to discipline yourself for God because God has given you a new heart if you are in Christ. For believers in Jesus, he is the one who died for the wickedness of your hearts and he is the one who gives us new hearts. So my friend, you can internalize the word. You can keep it in front of you all the time. Even if you can't memorize it, you can maintain discipline. So we face this predicament, this competition between God's words and sin's words. And Solomon gives a prognosis for it. So first step was to maintain discipline. Second, it's to maintain distance. Maintain distance. Namely, it's to maintain distance from temptation. To do what you can to avoid it. Look at chapter five, verse eight. He says, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Chapter 6, verses 27 to 29. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So, he, so is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Maintain distance. Now let's be clear what Solomon's not saying. Solomon doesn't tell his son, Your son, just go ahead and cloister yourself off from the world. Go be a monk and live in a monastery where you'll face no temptation ever. Now, remember, he told his son, you've got to deal with your heart first. You can remove the temptation from your circumstances, but you can't remove the desire of sin from your heart. Solomon doesn't tell his son, you know what, son, just, it might be a good idea. Don't interact with people. Especially bad people. Just avoid them. Well, not only is that inevitable, if we did that, we would never have opportunity to show love and mercy. Virtues that Proverbs upholds. We remember Jesus, who was pure in heart while living in the world and showing mercy to the worst of sinners. So what is Solomon saying? If He's not saying those things. I think the main point Solomon is trying to drive home, he's telling his son that sin, sexual sin in particular, is too dangerous to flirt with. It's too dangerous to flirt with. He says its consequences are too devastating even to entertain. He warns of those consequences in chapter 5, 9 to 14, in chapter 6, 30 to 35, maybe most ominously in chapter 7, verse 27. He says, left unchecked, sexual sin will destroy your health, it'll destroy your bank account, it'll destroy your family, it'll destroy your reputation it'll even destroy your eternity. I've heard one pastor share, uh, he said that you know, no one's ever told me that they're really glad that they committed adultery. No one's ever told him that they're, they're really glad they started watching pornography. Like that's what turned their life around. Now every person who's talked to him about those kinds of things always says, I wish I could go back and never start. To flirt with sexual sin is to dance on the edge of the cliff. So his son should maintain distance. Sexual sin is too dangerous to flirt with, not just because of its consequences, but also because of its power. It's like Lay's potato chips. You can't just have one. Chapter 6, verse 25 says, Flirt with it and it will capture you. Chapter 7, verse 23, Flirt with it and like an animal, you'll be trapped. Everything about sin, especially sexual sin, will convince you it's not dangerous. It will try to convince you, you can handle it. It will start off small and innocuous. You'll tell yourself it's just a little flirting. You'll tell yourself, what's the harm in a glance? You'll tell yourself, I can put this away anytime I want to. Pastor Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary, uh, wisely warns uh, married couples how affairs can start very innocently. He says, the woman in the cubicle besides you laughs at your jokes. The old boyfriend on Facebook interacts with you at a level that makes you feel important. Your friend at the gym seems to understand you better than your wife. You think to yourself that a few text messages back and forth, even if they are a a little flirty in nature, aren't that big of a deal. You say, well, I wouldn't be doing this if my husband would listen to me, or my wife doesn't admire me like she does. He says that this is happening in your life. You should hear the Jaws theme music in the background. (laughs) You might think it's harmless, but before long, you will forge an emotional intimacy that can easily lead to more. Take Solomon's counsel. It's wise that you do what you can to avoid temptation to sin. Yes, Jesus ate with sinners, but Jesus is the same one who said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off the extent that we should be willing to go. So if you're married, it's time to put away that flirty relationship. It might be time to exchange your smartphone for a dumb phone. Forget the restrictions, just get the jitterbug, whatever. It might be time to reevaluate what shows you watch. is not trying to keep his son from fun, he's trying to keep his son from harm. And again, remember his story. This was the wisest guy in Israel's history. He took Israel to the height of its glory and he threw it away. He threw it away for sexual sin. It's like he tells his son, son, don't be like me and learn from my experience. Learn from this teaching. Maintain distance from temptation. Now in this predicament, sometimes temptation is unavoidable. So what do you do when you beat it? This is the third step in the prognosis, is to maintain perspective. Namely, Solomon wants his son to see through sin's lies. And Solomon gives a sample of the lies that sin tells in chapter 7, verses 10 to 20. We'll follow along as I read those. Chapter 7, verses 10 to 20. Behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the streets, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linen from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband's not at home. He is gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. Solomon tells his son, maintain perspective. This woman is not who she appears to be. Outwardly, she's attractive. Inwardly, it says she's wily of heart. Her actions say that she'll give herself away, but literally, she is guarded in heart. She might give herself away physically, but she will not give herself away entirely. She will not give away her heart. She offers this kid a night of unparalleled pleasure that she claims will be consequence-free. She says, God's not gonna be mad. Me and God are tight. i made my sacrifices. My husband's not gonna find out. He's away. And in that day, people didn't eat meat every day. People didn't have nice furniture, so one commentator says this kid thinks he's hitting the jackpot. A beautiful woman, a great feast, a luxurious setting, exotic experiences, she says are all waiting just for him. But here's the thing, he could maintain perspective and just see right through it. If she's willing to betray her husband, who says that she gives a rip about him? But instead of maintaining perspective and seeing through her lies, the young man acts on impulse. He acts like an animal. Verse 22, he acts like an ox that is led to the slaughter. The craving of the moment blinds him to the consequence beyond it. So Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he levels with his son. He levels with him. I think it's ironic that people call God unloving for warning us about the consequences of sin. Isn't it unloving to do the opposite? Isn't it unloving to hide the consequences? I mean, the world tells, does things like tell girls that you, know, you need to portray yourself as sexually available and attractive. like That's the ideal. The world hides the consequence that this has led to an exponential increase in eating disorders, anxiety, suicide, and sexual abuse. The world wants you to do what feels good in the moment. It hides the consequences of how this has led half of men and a third of women who literally have their brains rewired by addiction to pornography. So you tell me who's loving. God who levels with us about the consequences or the world who hides them from us. The woman in the story doesn't want the young man to maintain perspective. She wants him to live only for the moment. So, so far, we've really only talked strategy and warnings. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't need a lot of convincing that I've messed up when it comes to God's instructions about sexual purity. I don't need a lot of convincing about the consequences of sexual sin. I think I admit, I hope everybody else does, that we've all done wrong. We've all been stupid. And we've even all gotten hurt. So it's not enough just to know how bad sin is. It's not enough to know how dumb we've been. If that's all that Solomon did, he wouldn't be a very persuasive parent, would he? Solomon doesn't just level with his son and warn him of consequences. He shows his son the better way. So we face a predicament to follow God's voice or to follow sin's voice. Now we have a strategy to face that predicament, but we need power. Power to handle the predicament. That comes from the joy of being loved. The joy of being loved. Now on the human level, in the area of sex, this comes from your spouse. Proverbs will talk about other areas of our lives, the the love and joy we find from family and from friends, but when it comes to sex, it focuses satisfaction through one channel, the love of your lifelong spouse of the opposite sex. Chapter five, verses 15 to 20, follow along. Chapter five, verses 15 to 20. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered, scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, listen to what's in the Bible. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? My friend, you thought God was anti-sex. Not at all. These verses make us blush. And just even a side note to parents, Solomon's not afraid to be open with his kid. God, the creator of sex, knows the outlet for sex that gives us lasting and meaningful satisfaction. Look at verse 18 again. He says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. In other words, the woman you've always been married to. She's the one who gives him joy that no other woman can. Ultimately, that's because the marriage covenant between a man and a woman is a display of the gospel. The complementary unity between husband and wife shows Christ's unity with the church. It's a display of the greatest love story of all. But practically, she gives him joy that no other woman can because the person you're committed to for life provides the only outlet where you can be completely vulnerable and yet completely safe. Another way to put this, the real way to enjoy the benefit of sex is through the selfless, secure, and permanent commitment of marriage. We don't want to be harsh or combative when talking about this, but just to pick maybe one example. This is why living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend prior to marriage is a bad idea. All Proverbs is saying is that you're settling for something less. When you try to enjoy the benefits without the commitment, you end up performing so that your partner will stay. So we look at verse 19. The power to face this predicament comes from the joy of being loved. On the human level, that's your spouse. He taught, in Verse 19, he talks about the quantity and quality of married sex. He says it should be frequent. He says, dare I say, kid, you should enjoy it. Verse 20 says it's such a good gift that you do not throw it away for a counterfeit. Now, if you if you read these verses, especially if you're married, your first response might be like, yeah, maybe these verses made sense on our honeymoon. <laughs> well, yes, there are going to be challenges. There will be times when even you're physically prevented or unable to Be intimate with one another. Marriage isn't all bliss. But when you read Proverbs 5 or even read 1 Corinthians 7, married couples are not just advised but commanded to steward the quality and the quantity of their intimacy. So maybe to get concrete for a moment, as much as you are able, take a getaway without the kids where you focus just on one another. Skip out on another episode of your show. Go to bed early. Continue to learn how to woo and romance your spouse. Ask for help when, it's, when it's, uh, you have, you're facing disagreements or difficulties. To get concrete for a moment, um, a resource that I have really appreciated is, is actually a podcast. It's called Fierce Marriage. It's a couple who are theologically like-minded to us, who are thoughtful, who are appropriate, and who are real people, and they tackle a host of subjects. It's good, something good to listen to on your commute. Fierce Marriage. Friends, married sex is a good gift. The joy of it can give us power to say yes to God and no to sin. But listen, if you are banking on that to give you all that you want, oh, you'll be disappointed. Whether married or single, the power you need to handle the predicament of choosing God and not sin, that power comes not just from the joy of your spouse's love, but from the joy of God's love for you in Christ. We get hints of that at the beginning of chapter 7. Notice the kind of relationship at the beginning of chapter 7 that his son should have with God's wisdom. He shouldn't just know it, he should treasure it. He shouldn't just memorize it, he should be close to it, a friend to it. Why? Because God's words, it says, are life. We follow God's ways, even God's ways when it comes to sex, because we trust and even delight in in God's character. And if you want to know God's character, ultimately, look no further than God's son. Jesus is the groom who has loved us like no one else. Who has seen you at your worst and sought you out anyway. Who, like we sang earlier, with his own blood, he bought you and for your own life, he died. And Jesus is coming again for his bride. Author Nancy Guthrie writes, Jesus, the church's groom, will not fail to protect us from evil. He will not dominate or abuse or ignore. He will not abandon. He will not die. His love will satisfy us forever in a home even better than Eden. Whether married or single, divorced or widowed, we all long for complete satisfaction and perfect harmony that we haven't experienced yet. Direct this longing toward the only one who can love you this way forever. So Fred, if you see these instructions in Proverbs 5 to 7 as God restraining you, well, then I submit you haven't seen the character of the God who gives these instructions. He is the one who opened up his arms for you by giving you his only son. He is worth trusting and listening to even in this area. Let's pray. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all your saints adore you, and we we join them, and we ask your mercy to wash us of our sins and make us holy as you are holy. We ask your mercy, God, to open our eyes, to warm our hearts so that we would trust you and follow your ways. So that we would dis- you give us power, God, to discipline ourselves to do this, to keep our hearts, to maintain distance from temptation, to maintain perspective when sin seems so appealing. Help us, God, to remain resting and enjoying your love for us and longing for the day when we will have complete harmony and perfect unity with Christ our Savior.